Well, good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtray, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning, to those of you who are here in person, and to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad you're here. This morning, we are going to be laying some groundwork for the new sermon series on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth that will be starting next week. It's a series I'm really excited about because I believe that God is going to use it through the ministry of his word to prepare us individually and as a church for what is to come, for the next chapter in our lives, for what comes after the pandemic. Yes, the pandemic will end, or it will change. We don't know for sure what's coming. No one knows. But 1 Corinthians is a book of the Bible that prepares us for that kind of uncertainty. It was written to a church that was facing a ton of challenges, both internal and external. It was a messy church. And it's a letter that grounds us as Christians today and those who were following Christ in Corinth in their true identity in Jesus and also equips them to navigate questions of culture and to serve the purpose that God had given them, to love that city missionally. It starts with the cross and it ends with the resurrection. It runs the gamut. It's an amazing book of the Bible. So you can think of today as a teaser for 1 Corinthians because this morning we're delving into the backstory of its author, the Apostle Paul. Except here in Acts 9, which we're about to read, he's still called Saul, his Hebrew name. Only later, in chapter 13 of Acts, will we start to hear him called by his Roman name, which is Paul, which is the name we know him by. Saul first shows up at the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was one of the earliest Christian leaders in Jerusalem and the first martyr of the church. And as the, crowns, as the crowd stoned, Peter, stoned Stephen rather to death, it says that a young man at whose feet the false witnesses who stoned Stephen laid their coats shows up in the narrative. And they were laying their coats at his feet to show that he was in charge. It just kind of sneaks in at the end of that chapter. And then chapter 8 begins with, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul... Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Saul excelled at imprisoning and even killing Christians. And then one day, everything changes for him. So let's pray before we open up our Bibles. Holy Spirit, as, as we come to you for illumination, we confess that we are people who see only what we want to see until you enter our lives, until you fill our hearts and change our minds. So would you shine your light on us this morning? 
Would you confront us with the living reality of your word? Take away our blindness. Give us eyes to see Jesus so that we can be your witnesses wherever you send us. Amen. Lily, could you grab my water for me? I forgot it over there. It's funny how you feel like you can impose on family members, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Did you really think that was funny? I'm having a, I'm having a hard time amusing my children these days. So, so we're going to read from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and that's shorthand for the Christian life, it comes from Isaiah 40, prepare the way of the Lord, right? That's the way they were called by that name, the Christians at that time. So if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. And did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much, how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, That is Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. The Lord has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. 
He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know about you, but I love origin stories. I love encountering a compelling character in a story and then later getting the story of where he or she comes from, what shaped them, what made them who they are. Almost all superhero stories have an origin, an account of the events that sets the protagonist apart from ordinary humanity. I'd have to say that probably my favorite superhero origin movie is Batman Begins. Can I get an amen? Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins 2005 is a masterpiece of the origin story genre. But Iron Man is a close second. In Batman Begins, the main character, Bruce Wayne, has to deal with the murder of his parents, which he witnesses as a boy. Years later, he still wants revenge, and he seeks it out, but he's not powerful or strong enough to get it. And so he goes on a quest. He spends years training in martial arts and overcoming his fears until he's ready to fulfill his mission to return to Gotham City to fight crime and and to drive a really cool car. There's a pattern to these origin stories if you stop and reflect on it. They all have a setback, some kind of suffering, and then the hero, in the case of Bruce Wayne, he doesn't get superpowers, but he kind of learns special skills. There's a redemption that takes place in a conversion. You can think of this passage we've read from Acts 9 as Paul's origin story, if you want to. After Jesus, Paul is the most important character in the New Testament, the author of many of its books. He's the greatest Christian theologian, and he sets out to answer the big faith questions. And we have that thanks to divine providence, which brought together the canon of Scripture, We have that in the Bible in written form for us, and the Holy Spirit brings that to life for us. But a lot of what Paul writes is also very personal. He's a pastor, too. And you can't really understand Paul unless you have this backstory that we're looking at this morning. I'll revert to his Hebrew name now. What happens to Saul in Acts 9 is unique, and it can't be reproduced. Let's be clear about that. But it also shows us a general pattern that I think applies to every one of us, a pattern through which God brings change and transformation and hope into our lives. What we see happen to Paul here is how faith comes to all of us, and there are three components to it. First of all, we see that Paul is bowled over. Secondly, he's blinded. And third and finally, he's befriended. Now, some of you know I'm more of a hockey fan than a fan of cricket, and this term bowled over actually comes from cricket. So I thought maybe we could just slightly adjust the three-point alliteration I've got to guide us through the sermon today. 
using one of my favorite words. Sometimes English isn't adequate, right? Sometimes we turn to other languages. And I love the French word bouleverser. Do you want to just say that? Doesn't it sound so amazing? Like, like there should be like croissants and uh, some French cuisine with that. Uh, say it with me, bouleverser. So bouleverser means more than to be bowled over, to be knocked over. It means to be disrupted, to be deeply moved, to be thrown, to be turned upside down, to be shaken, shocked, subverted, and overwhelmed. So we're going to look at what happens to Paul here and reflect on how God shows up in our lives as we think about how Paul is bouleversé, how he is blinded, and how he is befriended. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause after each one of those sections of the sermon and give us an opportunity to reflect or to pray in silence as to how God is working in our own lives. So Saul was literally bouleversé on his way to Damascus. He was thrown to the ground. What made him fall down? Well, his response gives us a clue right away. He asks a question. He says, who are you, Lord? And those four words are all that he says in this passage. So he knows it's God coming to him because he names whoever it is, whatever it is, as Lord. He knows this is a divine light. And there are precedents for that, right? For God speaking through the light out of the burning bush to Moses or at Mount Sinai. But one thing has changed. Saul's certainty is gone. He was this supremely confident religious leader a rising star among the Pharisees, a group of scholars who knew and obeyed the Jewish law better than anyone. But now he has met the living God in a way like he never imagined possible, and he has to ask what he thought he knew. Who are you? And that question is the beginning of his transformation. That newfound humility is what allows the Holy Spirit to start to work, to turn him around, to renew him. And we see a change right away. He goes from a position of power as a religious and political leader to being helpless, right? He has to be led by the hand into Damascus. He's blind, he's hungry, he's confused. There's an amazing painting by Caravaggio a 17th century Italian painter that picks up beautifully on this detail. Caravaggio here, if you can make that out, assumes that Saul was riding a horse, which scripture doesn't tell us. He uses light in this painting so effectively to show the way that Saul lying down now, knocked off the horse with his arms raised, open to God, is receiving something from heaven. And you can see the position of Saul. Normally, the key character in a painting, the key figure, would be right in the middle, but Caravaggio places Saul at the bottom. And you've got this horse 
also lit up right in the middle of the painting. And Saul has been displaced. He has fallen from his high place on his war horse to the ground where he lies, eyes closed, blind, his sword useless to one side, his helmet fallen off on the other. He's dressed as a Roman soldier, which represents power. That has been put in its place. But he's looking up. There's a new openness. You can see he has an assistant who's also included in the painting, who's looking down, who doesn't get it. Saul thought he had life figured out. But it turns out he was believing what he wanted to believe. And now he runs into the God who is real and true and personal. Saul was so busy doing what he thought was right that he wasn't listening to God's voice. Does that sound familiar to us at all? We want some things so badly that we forge ahead with our own plans without checking in with God to see if we're on the right path, if we're going in the right direction. If you are looking primarily for a God who will meet your needs and fulfill your desires, if you think in a way that's kind of what God does, you are not going to encounter the living God. It will not be the risen Jesus who meets you on the road of your life. Only a God who is bigger than your own needs, who is far beyond what you can imagine, only that God can change you and save you. And that is the God of the Bible. Are you willing to stop and listen? And perhaps even to change your direction? This is bouleversée. This is the beginning of hope. And so I want us to take a moment now in silence to reflect on humility in our lives. Are you right now in a place of confidence? Things are going well. You know how to manage life. Is God inviting you to step away from that? Not to be converted in this way. You're already a believer, but to be renewed in, as Fiona prayed this morning, that place of being on your knees, that place of seeing God as the Holy of Holies. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Show us who you are. Answer that question. Prompt it within us. Who are you, Lord? Amen. But the next thing that happens in our story is that 
things actually get worse for Saul. From being bowled over by God, and God is the one who initiates each of these steps, Saul now goes blind. That light from heaven didn't lead to some immediate spiritual high. Sometimes that's what we associate with conversion, right? The the person who stands up on Sunday morning and tells a story of triumph and victory. No, Jesus tells Saul to go into the city and wait. How often does God do that to us, right? Wait. In fact, waiting for God is a good definition of faith. And so Saul obeys. After being knocked off his horse and blinded, I don't know if he had much of a choice. And he waits in darkness for three days. And his blindness is significant. I recently finished reading Anthony Dewar's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See. It tells the story of Marie Laure, a young girl in Paris who goes blind, and Werner, a young German boy who loves radios, whose lives are intertwined during the Second World War. As a blind person, Marie Laure depends on other people, but her blindness also frees her up to develop a vision for what is not visible. She listens like never before after she goes blind as a seven-year-old. She stops and she ponders. She's blind, but she has this incredible gift for lighting up the lives of so many people around her. She helps them see. And light comes up constantly in this amazing novel. Light you cannot see. Like the photons of electromagnetic waves that make radio communication possible. Are there any physicists in the room? I see one, at least. And Anthony Doerr suggests that behind all of what we can see is this incredible, complex, spiritual reality. And the love that people long for and want to give, which we also cannot see, is swirling beneath the surface of our lives. And as I learned a little bit about the author, it didn't entirely surprise me to find out that the novel was inspired by the true story of a young man named Jacques Luzerin, a leader in the French resistance during World War II, who was blind and who found hope and courage in what he called the inner light that came to him through his Christian faith. And over the course of the war, Luzerin recruited 2,000 members of the resistance, and he went on to be imprisoned in Buchenwald, the German concentration camp, and he survived. And he said that he was able to do all of this because Jesus had given him a vision of light that shines in the darkness and that the darkness cannot overcome. Are we developing that kind of a vision? In Acts 9, the Holy Spirit used Paul's blindness to enable him to see all the light that he could not see before. 
As a Pharisee, he wouldn't have ever believed that God could become human. But now he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. What did it mean, he must have been asking himself, during those three days in darkness? Well, I think simply it meant that everything was not as Saul had assumed. God's plan, as the Pharisees would have believed, was not to send a strong and mighty Messiah to overthrow Roman rule, to usher in a new kingdom for God's chosen people. God wasn't looking for champions like the Pharisees, strong enough to obey his law, disciplined enough. Instead, God had sent a suffering servant as Messiah, a servant whose purpose was to die on a cross, but not for his own sins. If he was risen from the dead, this Jesus, well, then he was the true Messiah, holy and righteous. So why did he have to die? And a light must have come on, an epiphany for Saul. Jesus had died for others, for you, for me, which means life is not about earning approval or making a name for ourselves. It's salvation by grace alone. And the grace of Jesus is always there for us. It was for Paul too. Let's pause for a moment. And I invite you to reflect or to pray on how the circumstances of your life right now how you can see the setbacks. Maybe it's something like Saul's blindness in that moment. The plans that have been disrupted in your life, the disappointments. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's the job you haven't found yet. It's a sense of dissatisfaction. Would you give that over to God in the silence now? and ask him to open your eyes to what he does have for you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Help us to see you. So after he was bowled over and blinded, next Saul is befriended. It often takes a friend to bring us back to the light. But here we see Ananias resist. God tells him to go, but... He has understandable reservations. Saul had killed his brothers and sisters. He's scared and he protests. But then the Lord says, go a second time, and he does it willingly. Even more, he does it with enthusiasm. Ananias lays hands on Paul. It's a gesture that signifies closeness and affection. And then, radically, he calls him Brother Saul. And I think 
There and then, Ananias understands the gospel. If the Messiah did not come in strength for those who can obey, for those who can achieve, if he came in weakness, what that means is that anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can have their sins wiped out because Jesus died on the cross for all of us. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. When Ananias befriends Saul, that's God's promise of peace to us. Enemies embracing. God says to Saul effectively here, Come to me and I will give you rest. I am your true father. I will lift you up in tenderness and wrap you in my arms and never let you go. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are mine. And this friendship that begins and will grow between Ananias and Saul points us to the church. At the beginning of this passage, when the Lord first encounters Saul on the road, why does Jesus tell him twice that he's persecuting him, right? Because Saul was persecuting his followers, not Jesus. How could Jesus resurrected be persecuted? Surely he was above and beyond that. Well, I think it was because Jesus is so close to his followers that he associates with them, with us, completely. In the same way that Saul had been killing them, he's now called to embrace them and to grow with them in the long-term, messy community of the church. If, that is, he wants to continue to encounter Jesus. And this must be when Saul started to understand that Jesus sees the church as his body, After all, it's Saul who introduces that image. That Jesus sends us out with that mission to be his body together, to practice forgiveness, to love our enemies. If you can pull up verses 15 and 16 for us, I want us to look for a moment at the way that God describes Saul's purpose. Because this body, the body of Christ, is not muscular Christianity. It's not the church growth program to raise up 50,000 Christians in a church. No, it's a body marked by suffering. And as God gives Ananias a word of purpose for Saul... He says in verse 16, the next verse, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Is that something we're prepared to hear from Jesus? Because we know that we don't grow without suffering. Our natural inclination is to flee from it to do whatever we can to insulate ourselves from every kind of suffering. And so now in the silence, I want to invite you to consider 
how, first of all, you could be a friend like Ananias to someone else. And then second of all, to ask God to send an Ananias to you. It might be a person, it might be a book, but a message, a message of encouragement, a message to set you on a path that will lead to peace. It won't be easy. The body of Christ is marked by the wounds in his hands, by his suffering, and we must be too. But if you would ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can enter more fully into the church, I'd encourage you to do that in the next couple of minutes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who comes close. You are a God of blessed interventions. And there is nothing that happens in our lives that you don't have your hand on. I pray that you, through the suffering that some of us are experiencing more than others, but also through the relationships that we have now or have yet to begin, that you would show us your will, that you would set us on a path that comes from your purposes, that we would not be complacent and let things pass us by, but that you would point us to those people you have in mind for us, like you did Ananias. We pray that we would be more and more a church that reflects that reality. And as we embark on this series in 1 Corinthians, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit as a congregation. Prepare us for what is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I can give you a little bit of homework this week, um, 1 Corinthians is not a short book of the Bible. Technically, it's an epistle, a letter, but I'd encourage you to read the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians this week. And as you read ahead, you will find that our collective reflecting on Scripture will be enriched for you. It will mean so much more, so... Consider doing that this week. Elena is going to come up now and lead us in the prayers of the people.